It was a very surreal moment indeed. I, I, I mean, I honestly went into the den and I think this is probably another tip actually. I went into the den believing that it would be an awful experience and that I would be lucky to come away with one investment. I didn't want to let myself believe that it would be a walk in the park. And had I done that, I wouldn't have prepared mm. as much as I did. And I think ultimately when it comes to investors, what you have to remember, and I, this was something that was really burned into my mind when I went in there, was that these people are giving you a lot of money and you have to respect them and you have to do them the um, service, if you like, of showing that you respect them by knowing your numbers, knowing yes. what you're going to give them back. And, um, you know, I think some people do walk into those situations kind of expecting that you're going to be given money because aren't I brilliant? And actually, yes. that's not the right approach to it. Hello and welcome to the latest episode of Heads Talk with me, Elaine Pringle-Schwitter, the podcast where we talk to C-level executives, leaders of institutions and heads of multinationals. What are the current topics? They talk, we listen. <laughs> My guest today is changing the way we buy clothes, in particular children's clothes. I believe there is a real shift in this direction and my guest is one of the leaders in this space. It's all about the circular economy today and my guest's own business gained national and even international attention when she appeared on the recent Dragon's Den only to wow the dragons and even made one or two cry. A fascinating episode on Heads Talk today, but before we get into that, here's a brief message. My name's Chrissy. I'm co-founder and chief mixologist at Bird and Blend Tico. I know Elaine loves our tea and makes weekly recommendations to you so you can enjoy whilst listening to this fabulous podcast. We're an eco-conscious, independent, people-focused and award-winning tea mixology company on a mission to spread happiness and reimagine tea. We now have 14 stores across the UK and over 100 blends to choose from, so there's something for everyone. From our traditional Great British Cuppa and Builder's Breakfast Brew to fun flavours like chocolate digestives, rhubarb and custard and strawberry lemonade, you'll be sure to discover the perfect cuppa for you check us out online you can take our tea matching quiz it's www.birdandblendtea.com and it'll find the right tea for you or please do pop into one of our stores and meet some of the team and they will help you out thanks for your time and i hope you enjoy the podcast let's talk podcast with your host elaine pringle schwitter i am giselle Ruffer, the creator of de Lance a unique watch for women, a symbol of recognition for women who want to make the world a better place for all. Delance.com Let's Talk Podcast with your host Elaine Pringle-Schwitter. As someone who has put their heart and soul into their business, have you forgotten to look after your own finances and future planning? My name is Victoria McLagan, and I'm a lawyer and trust and estates practitioner and founder of EWPS. I'm a trusted advisor and have been helping my clients and their families with wills, powers of attorney and probate for over 17 years. If you would like to talk through your future financial protection and will planning on a fixed fee basis, please contact me at victoria at ewps.ch for a free no obligation chat. 
your host Elaine Pringle Schwitter. Charlotte Morley is the founder and CEO of The Little Loop. She founded the organization early 2020 while working as the head of digital product at Not on the High Street. She left her role to build her company full-time and has described this as both the biggest risk she's ever taken and the best thing she could imagine doing for her children's future. A Cambridge geographer and one-time geography teacher, Charlotte has been a lifelong sustainability advocate. However, Charlotte found parenthood to be a watershed moment for personal environmental action. She was particularly struck by the power of consumer brands to make acting more sustainably a part of people's everyday lives through convenient, cost-effective and fun solutions. She realised she could use her tech and retail experience for good by revolutionising the way we shop for our children's clothes and doing so in a way which incentivises clothing brands to adopt more sustainable practices. And so The Little Loop was born. To add to this, Charlotte was named as one of 15 eco-entrepreneurs to watch by the British Entrepreneur Awards, affectionately known as the Grammys of Business. Let's have a conversation now. So without further ado, I'd like to welcome Charlotte to Head to Talk. Many thanks for being with us today. Thank you for having me, Elaine. Thank you. Um, this episode is recorded on St. Patrick's Day. So happy St. Patrick's Day to you, Charlotte. Thank um, you. I am wearing green. <laughs> <laughs> brilliant. I, um, I was excited when you agreed to come on the show to talk about your business and be a part of the new retail series on Heads Talk. Okay, let, let's just begin by talking about your organisation, The Little Loop. What is it? And explain the business model. We describe ourselves as the first shared wardrobe for kids in the UK. And what that actually means in practice is that parents access clothes, they rent them rather than buying them. So they take things in and out of the shared wardrobe as and when they need them, reducing the need to buy and store and ultimately hoard lots and lots of things which their children are very quickly growing out of and which become ultimately a problem of waste within their home and then outside of their home when they get rid of them. Um, the business model is um, relatively simple in one sense in that um, it's a, a membership model. So parents pay a monthly or quarterly cost to access the shared wardrobe to rent those clothes. Um, in exchange for their um, for their fee, they have access, they have membership of our wardrobe, they have access to the wardrobe, they can rent a certain number of items, um, according to the size of their membership. Mm -hmm. And then when they send them back to us, they can um, get something else. So they, they essentially they get what we call credits, um, they spend the credits, they send their clothes back, and they get their credits back to spend again. So they're cycling these clothes in and out of the wardrobe. So it's very simple, or it's designed to be very simple for the consumer um, but we are also effectively a marketplace a rental marketplace which means that the business model has a b2b side as well yeah um, which has always been a core part of how our business works so rather than my wholesaling the stock from businesses mm -hmm. um, from the brands that make the clothing we actually partner with the brands they own the stock they send it to us we share the rental revenue with them so that's and actually that's our our unique selling point. We're one of the only businesses full full stop actually working in that way um, 
in rental and particularly in a rental subscription type model rather than as a one-off rental model. Um, and, and you say we're also effectively a technology company because it's technology which is enabling that to happen. Oh, so your rental company, your technology company, um, you, you, you call yourself the first shared wardrobe um, company. I, I assume that that is the USP. That's part of the, the, the USP of this organisation, isn't it? Absolutely, yes. And I think, you know, very specific about that language, about this being a shared wardrobe, um, and, and that is the USP, because lots of people use the term shared wardrobe. So there are more people that yes. do it, but I think... Yes. The reason that we we consider ourselves quite unique in, is because we truly are. We we have this enormous wardrobe, which people, because they are members of it, rather than renting one-off items, whereby it's more of a, um, it's not their wardrobe, it's their kind of occasional. Um, yes, I don't yeah. know. Yeah. They're occasionally accessing it. Whereas what we what we've built is something that parents can use constantly so it's literally like having a wardrobe mm -hmm. in the cloud rather than in their house which they are constantly putting things in and out of and mm -hmm. our technology has enabled that to work in a very seamless way which is much more closely connected with how they would otherwise be shopping so we're not forcing them to for example to have a set number of you, mm -hmm. you may only have four items at one time um, there's a lot of flexibility we're not forcing them to swap all of their clothes at once which is what a lot of other um, so-called share wardrobes do mm -hmm. you can literally return one item you can return four items and there's, there's this constant flow of items um, which we believe is very important because if we're going to change the way people shop, if we're going to move people away from ownership and towards access of things, mm -hmm. we need to make that something which slots into their everyday life, which can genuinely replace the majority of what they currently do, rather than be a bit of a bolt on on the side. And that's what we're aiming for. You talked um, briefly about the partnerships and collaborations in, in, in the B2B space. We're going to talk about that later in, in this episode. Mm -hmm. But I, I want to talk about some of the other stakeholders, um, uh, for instance, the parents. How mm -hmm. are they, they receiving it? And what's the feedback you're getting? It's consumers are hard <laughs> because they get one, one gets very set in one's waist. And I think... Um, you know, we, we get used to doing what we do and the linear economy is incredibly embedded in, in how we how we operate. You know, we've been shopping for things and throwing them away for as long as we can remember. So it's taken time to, to start to turn people around to thinking, actually, you know what, this isn't so hard. This is something that I can really embrace. Mm -hmm. And we're starting to really see that shift. Um, and we're, you know, we're seeing more and more people saying, well, this is strange and it's not what yeah. I'm used to, but yeah. I'm going to give it a go. And what we find is that when people do give it a go, generally speaking, um, they love it, <laughs> you know, they, and they embrace it. And we have got customers who've been with us since the day we launched and are still renting. Mm -hmm. And as they get more used to it, they replace a greater share of the wardrobe with rental. So, you know, they might start off with a small subscription and they might increasingly over time grow it. We've got customers who've got double our actual normal maximum subscription because they love it so much. So those stakeholders are, I think, increasingly embracing this idea of access. Um, but I, you know, I won't lie to you. It's been it's been a journey to get people to convince people that this is a better way of doing things. And I so think the proof is in the pudding. Sorry, sorry to do. What you're effectively doing is changing customer behavior, and that is yeah. not an easy thing to do. No. So, but 
but um, as many have said, this is the direct direction we're going. So eventually they're all gonna jump on the bandwagon and get on with it. But as, as you say, I can understand that that's just almost like the teething problem of a transition. Absolutely. And especially, you know, being a market leader and, you know, there are others in the space who are doing an amazing job. So I'm not trying to claim that we're the only ones yeah, doing it, yeah. but all of us, all of, of, of us market leaders, and there aren't many of us considering the size of the market and mm -hmm. the size of, you know, the potential yeah. future of this. Yeah. Um, we're all trying to change behavior. And, and for tiny businesses, that's very hard. We don't have the weight behind us of, of the likes of Amazon or, or indeed, mm. you know, many of the fast fashion outlets out there. So we have to be clever about it. And, you know, we have to really appeal to almost an emotional or very much, in fact, an emotional sense in the consumer. Um, but of course, because of the sustainability element, that's easier for us to do. Um, but that's what we've really had to capitalize on to try to change that behavior. And the, the thing in, in understanding your, your business model and what you do, and it's all about sustainability, it's all about circular economy. As a parent, if I want to exchange and change clothes back and forth, am I doing that in a sustainable way in terms of returning and, and receiving? Is that happening in a sustainable way? We certainly think so. So what we find is that parents tend to replicate their shopping habits when they're renting. So if they were going to shop every month for new clothes for their child, then they will swap their rental clothes every month. Mm -hmm. um, if they were going to shop every three months for their child, they will swap their, their rental clothes every three months. So that the first point is that we're not increasing the amount of clothes that people are, are, are getting. We're just replacing purchasing with renting. So that's the first thing. So we don't believe that we're making anything worse there. Mm -hmm. But what we're doing is then they send those clothes back seamlessly rather than getting hoarded in a closet and potentially going to waste. Mm -hmm. Then the second point, which is, I guess, about shipping and whether we're increasing the carbon footprint of you know clothes mm -hmm. going backwards and yes. forwards. We fulfill, and this is something very particular to us, but we fulfill everything from a central location. Oh. And people generally do swap, well, their first order is normally for between six and 15 items. So rather than going to high street shops and, and increasingly online high street retailers um, and ordering something from here and something from there and something from elsewhere, because we're a marketplace and we've got lots of brands in one place, people mm -hmm. are getting the majority of their clothes in one place. Yeah. which are being shipped to them in one package. So we're actually reducing that footprint in the first place. And then when they're swapping, again, they're only swapping at the same rate as they would have gone and ordered something else from the internet. But ideally, they're doing it just in one place rather than in multiple places. So we see ourselves as actually reducing that impact. Okay. And, and one last question in that space. Have you sort of received, you know, in the, the time you've been in operation, I think at the beginning of 2020 to now, have you received kind of, I would say, constructive feedback um, by some of the consumers of, of your, your services that make you sort of slightly modify the business model from when it started in 2020 to now? Have you received any? Absolutely. I mean... So as a, as a tech person, my approach to a business and, and, you know, indeed most startups are like this these days is to, mm -hmm. to build and iterate. So we build something basic and then we listen and we watch what people are doing and we change it as we go. So that's always been our approach in any case. Yep. And we have spoken with our customers across the years and we could always do more. <laughs> and, and we always indeed say to our customers, please let us know if something's not working. But we started off with just one age range. We started off with just age two to three, just to 
test it. We yeah. knew we would expand if it was working. So we've obviously expanded. Mm-hmm. We've continued to grow up to ages nine to 10 in order mm-hmm. to make sure that we're meeting the needs. Mm-hmm. Um, we've increased our range and our selection. You know, most of the feedback has, has predominantly been, you don't have the choices that we want. You don't have enough for us to make this a, con- you know, a continuous service. Yeah. And we've yeah. constantly, we've responded to that. Um, and we've increased subscription sizes. We've increased the flexibility of how you can swap. It used to be that you could only swap once every three months. We made it so that you could swap any time, et cetera. So we're constantly iterating you know, in response to feedback. And we're just about to enter another big kind of consultative phase where having just acquired lots of new customers to Dragon's Den, got a lot more data. Yes. We now know that we need to have another look and see um, you know, what else can we improve. So, so, it's, so it's really circular on all levels, isn't it? You get mm. feedback from the users, feedback on the business level. Okay, that, that's good. That's good for now. Let's talk about um, some of the current things that are happening around the globe and how mm. that and how they affect business. And a couple of disasters. Um, I'd like to talk about the first one was COVID, and which we're I think we're slowly coming through that. But how has it molded molded your organisation and your personal thinking, um, Charlotte? It's molded it in two very different ways. Um, we launched the business pretty much the beginning of the very first yes. lockdown in the UK, <laughs> which was great timing. Um, choice timing. Um, and we we kept we you know we went ahead with launch for various reasons. Predominantly, that we had a lot of brands who were on board and they'd given us a lot of stock, and we thought, well, we're trialing this, so let's go ahead. Yeah. Um, it was hard because it was quite hard to know. It was another factor to throw into the mix when we were considering what was and wasn't working. Mm. Um, it definitely affected what people wanted to rent. So, you know, as you may or may not remember, I know you're not in the UK at the moment, but nobody was going out wearing dresses anymore. So we had quite a lot of dresses in stock. Nobody wanted Mm -hmm. to rent those. And they weren't still everyday dresses, but kids were spending their lives in tracksuits and jeans and (laughs) T-shirts. So we maybe didn't have quite the selection that was ready for COVID and things like that. So we've adapted and we've listened, Um, but it did slow us down, I think, at the beginning you know to go back to that point about changing behavior Mm. people are less likely to change their behaviors when they feel like they're being um kind of bombarded with other external factors so Mm. if you're feeling very unsafe in your life you're going to batten down and kind of almost double down on what you already do because those things feel safe so changing behavior through the pandemic in some ways is harder Mm -hmm. but on the flip side and i mentioned that you know it affects us in two very contrasting ways we have seen consumer focus on sustainability increase through the pandemic for various reasons. I think people spending a lot more time in their home environment, in the outdoors, understanding nature, people reducing their consumption because they weren't going out as often, they weren't in the shop. So, and realizing that actually, you know what, I can reduce my consumption and it doesn't impact my standard of living so you know we have um at a macro level seen a really rapid shift towards a more sustainable um, mindset when it comes to consumption and that's obviously really you know hugely helped our position and helped us with that behavior change and people are more open-minded so some some silver linings Um, (laughs) how would you say it's affected the retail industry in general this um the whole covid the old pandemic I think it did instantly. I mean, I I know e-commerce has actually been thriving. I think it's just about to start to take a bit of a downturn again, but, you know, because of the new global situation. Mm -hmm. Um, But I I think, you know, initially coronavirus affected the retail industry because people just weren't buying things because they didn't need to. But then as soon as we came out of that initial lockdown, people were desperate to buy again. So 
I think it's been a tale of two halves, to be honest, you know, and I, I do think there was a lot of consumption in the periods where we were no longer feeling as, as, as under threat. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's probably followed a bit of a, you know, uh, a bit of a rollercoaster trajectory. I haven't followed it closely, but that's my understanding. Mm-hmm. Um, and now as we move into the current horrendous global crisis, you know, yeah. I think we will see a downturn again in terms of, of, mm-hmm. of retail. Um, we don't tend to find ourselves quite affected by exactly the same trends that the rest of e-commerce does. Um, I've not quite figured that out yet, but I think partly because we're a service and we we offer a service which we see as being a necessary service. So you have to clothe your children. Mm-hmm. Um, we're not about clothing them for parties or for one-off occasions. We're, we're here to provide you with a service which clothes them every day on a regular basis. And I think once people shift to using that service, it just becomes a bit like a Netflix subscription or, you know, or or your milk plan. It's something that you just do and and you just keep, you know, it settles into your life and you keep using it. Yeah, I think it would be fascinating to to see in probably the next couple of years how consumer behavior would change in such a way that it just becomes normal. It's just, just like brushing your teeth. Mm. Um, and shopping in the way in that way you talked about the wall let's let's talk about it let's continue talking about it I mean it's dominating <laughs> the airways at the moment the war in Europe it how has recycling and donation efforts brought home the work you are doing you know how Covid has sort of expedited digital adoption in businesses and corporations I suspect this war you know we will see sort of a, a sea change in recycling of goods such as clothes do you agree Charlotte? You know, it's really interesting. I haven't honestly thought about it yet. I don't know because I I don't think things have quite settled down um, in terms of the war and, and, you know, where it's headed to. But yes, I think what was really fascinating was that one of the things which people very quickly rushed to do when there was a, if you you like, if you'll excuse the expression, a call to arms to help um, was what can I give? what, What do I have that I can give? Um, and I think that that was driven both through, you know, genuine generosity, but also a sense of, well, this can work for me too. And I don't think I'm not being cynical in saying that I'm not criticizing. I think that there is almost that's human nature. Well, what can I do that's also going to work for me? I did it. I went up and I cleared out my children's closets because I knew we had some amazing warm coats that I could sell. Um, but I would rather that they went to somebody who genuinely needed them because I knew that they were great quality and and, and they were sent across to, to Ukraine. And um, I do think that it's it's highlighted that people like to give. People like to know that the things that they have are going to go on and be, be um, appreciated and be given a second life. Yeah. And and I definitely, and this is something that we, we really believe in, I, I think that there's a real sense of story in our belongings and we I think increasingly like to think of the things that we have loved being loved by somebody else and all the love that we've put into those things the story that we've created for them not just going to landfill you know going on to kind of have continued stories and you know it's it's something that we think if we do it in the right way can change the way that we think about our things and our commodities and make people look after them better and make people want to make them last longer and I think ultimately that's what's going to shift the way we consume and yeah and I I really do believe somehow this war is making people think that way so it's probably Mm. will make it easier for them to adopt and adapt to your business model 
um, coming on the other side of it as well. So, so how long do you think fast fashion will last? <laughs> <laughs> Your enemy. What, what a question <laughs> well if peter jones is to be believed forever and ever um but i i don't know i mean it's so so hard to know how we change the behaviors of the people who have come to rely on fast fashion because it's very complex and multifaceted in terms of you know what drives people to shop with fast fashion mm -hmm. nothing has changed in terms of the individualism of, of society growing the the idea that people need to constantly access new things that's not changed yet obviously what our business models are doing is offering an alternative way to get newness without it being mm -hmm. as yes. environmentally damaging and we'd hope that that will bring about one you know one route to the end of fast fashion mm -hmm. but Unfortunately, it's not possible to operate circular business models at rock bottom prices because of the the margins of scale and the, the, you know the unit economics ultimately of mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. everything I bring back to my service. I've got to launder, I've got to um, restock, I've got to package and resend out again, and all of that costs money. Mm -hmm. So it, it's not possible to do that with a three pound t-shirt, and we wouldn't want to because one of the things that we're really focused on doing is giving people. A, a more cost-effective way to access ethically and sustainably produced clothing. Mm -hmm. um, so as long as there continues to be a race to the bottom in terms of pricing, mm -hmm. it's hard to see the end of fast fashion because what none of our circular businesses are able to do is have that same race to the bottom. Neither should we, but there does need to be a shift where, you know, that, that Amazon culture is unfortunately making people believe that everything should be pennies to buy and, mm -hmm. and that just can't continue but how we get people to change that attitude I'm not quite sure all right once again we're back to changing consumer behavior absolutely mm. okay and um, we briefly touched on this next question which is about partnerships and collaborations mm -hmm. pretty much what does your your ecosystem look like um who are you working with to deliver your business model and satisfy your customers our um primary partners are our brands and they are our lifeblood really you know we are a b2b to c company and um, i spend a huge amount of time on my brand relationships because without them we couldn't operate mm -hmm. they've been with me from the beginning many of them and they they put a huge amount of faith in this business model you know initially it hasn't been economically viable for beneficial for them because we've been so small mm -hmm. um you know from an effort perspective it's probably outweighed what they what they're making back but they all believe that it is the future they all believe that the way we're doing it is the right way to do it, to be able to scale it and be able to make it the future. And therefore they've been supporting us. Um, we have around 10 partner brands now. Mm -hmm. um, it changes, um, not all the time, but it's been changing, which is why I'm not hundred percent sure, but I've got another 10 lined up to join us. Mm -hmm. and, and that's incredibly exciting because I think that is a real demonstration of the fact that the wider fashion industry believes this is the future and believe and wants to be involved and wants to make it work. Do you, um, do you vet them on their green credentials? Yes, as best we can. Um, so at the moment, we don't have the resources to go and independently verify what they tell us, but you know, we we trust that they have been independently verified elsewhere. So for example, several of our brands have got GOT certification, mm -hmm. um, organic cotton certification. Um, so our our broad criteria are that they must be at least 
conscious of their supply chain and aware that things are being manufactured in an ethical way that mm-hmm. they must know their factories and know that they comply with ethical um certifications um that their, their workers are being paid a fair wage that where possible their garments are manufactured from cotton organic cotton predominantly organic cotton with our brands mm-hmm. um or at least um fair to, a better cotton initiative um and that we don't accept clothing which is um made of kind of or at least we avoid try to avoid it where we can um mm-hmm. made of mixed fabrics so you know we, we tend to avoid polyesters and elast- um, mm-hmm. high proportions of nylons and elastanes because we want our clothes to ultimately be able to be composted or broken down and properly recycled mm-hmm. um then the other thing of course is quality so um because we share the revenue with our brands that instantly um if you like um, puts off brands that that don't believe in the quality of their garments. Mm-hmm. They wouldn't make a return if um, if you know if, if the cl- clothing wasn't good enough quality. Mm-hmm. So um, that's built into our model. They have to have high quality garments. Um, and that's been fantastic. Yeah, they, have, they have to really follow your ethos because, in a sense, that is your brand. And absolutely. they have to adhere to that. Mm. They do. And then something we absolutely love, and it's been a side effect that I didn't really anticipate from the beginning, is we've been able to give a platform for some smaller brands who maybe don't have um, as big a profile themselves, but we found yeah. them, we love their quality, and we want to promote that. And I'm increasingly bringing on a mixture of large and small brands in order that we can keep doing that. We want to be able to bring to market in a different way mm-hmm. some of those smaller brands that are doing a great job. Is it an element of your old job working in not on the high street? As I remember quite a few products yes. and yes, various brands there. And I thought, oh, fantastic. Those small, they were sort of fantastic quality. Absolutely. I mean, that was not in the high streets raison d'etre, really. That's what yeah. Holly Tucker set out to build, something that promoted small business and gave them a platform. And that's where we would increasingly like to get to. You know, yeah. What I've been struck by is a number of small businesses who have such strong values and that although it's very, very costly for them to do so, mm-hmm. they continue to produce organic, ethically manufactured clothing and they don't make anywhere near the profit that they could make were they to cut corners and to you know reduce those um standards mm-hmm. but they refuse to do it and i think they should be rewarded for that right okay no that's good good stuff um my listeners would not be happy if i didn't talk about the startup journey and mm-hmm. investment i think by now everyone in the uk at least and many elsewhere know about your appearance on the dragon's den <laughs> i mentioned it briefly in the introduction incidentally i watched it when it aired bravo to you and getting nearly all the dragons excited about your <laughs> business. You. it was called the perfect pitch wasn't it fantastic um so, well, you know, Peter Jones. <laughs> so you can provide my listeners, many of whom are, are startups, entrepreneurs, individuals who are thinking about the switch from corporate life to owning their own business, which you have done. Mm-hmm. Um, can you provide them with a few tips on obtaining the right investor or investment sums for, for their business? Where do I start? <laughs> um, What's the magic bullet? So, you know, have you got there's one, I mean, there's one reading? really critical thing which I often come back to, which is, and it, it goes back a little bit to what we were just discussing with the brands. Yep. You need to know exactly what your business is in terms of its values. So there are huge numbers of investors out there, but some of them are going to ask you to do things which you're not going to be prepared to do. 
um, if you stick to your values. And if you have those values clearly defined and you know what your business is about, you know what its why is, you know what, what you're trying to achieve and why you're trying to achieve it, then every decision that you make, including what investors to take on board and how much money you're prepared to raise, because obviously the more money you raise, the potentially the more beholden to investors you are, um, you know, every decision will be made through the lens of those values and you're more likely to make the right decision. Um, so yeah, I think that that's a, that's a big tip. It might sound a little woolly, but I think it's it's so well, that's a big that tip. And, and perhaps while while you're thinking of the second one, I'm just like to let the the audience know. I think it was the first time in Dragon Den's history that you actually left with double what you requested. Um, <laughs> yes, <laughs> yes. How did you do that? <laughs> and I think, well, I I mean, <laughs> I don't know quite how I did that. <laughs> and it wasn't, it it wasn't really was a pre-meditated. real moment for you, wasn't it? It when was, you yeah, absolutely. Into that lift, you thought, what happened? It was a very surreal moment indeed. I, I, I mean, I honestly went into the den, and I think this is probably another tip, actually. I went into the den believing that it would be an awful experience and that I would be lucky to come away with one investment. I didn't want to let myself believe that it would be a walk in the park. And had I done that, I wouldn't have prepared Mm. as much as I did. And I think ultimately when it comes to investors, what you have to remember, and this was something that was really burned into my mind when I went in there, was that these people are giving you a lot of money and you have to respect them and you have to do them the um, service, if you like, of showing that you respect them by knowing your numbers, knowing yes. what you're going to give them back. And, um, you know, I think some people do walk into those situations kind of expecting that you're going to be given money because aren't I brilliant? And actually, yes. that's not the right approach to it. You know, I went in there thinking, I need to know my numbers. I need to be able to show these people that I'm serious and that I'm a, you know, a serious concern and I know my stuff because they have got an hour and a half, which is how long I was in there for, to make up their mind about whether I'm investable, which is not a lot of time. So I, you know, I, I over-prepared and ultimately it was underpinned by a sense of respect for those people yeah. who are incredibly yeah. experienced yeah. business people. I think we, we only saw that sort of was it 10, 15 minutes. Yeah, right? about 10 but minutes. Going in there, did you know what exactly it is you wanted from which dragon? I knew enough about the dragons that I knew which dragons I wanted to have on my board. Yeah. I so so there were two things about you know my approach to going in there. The first thing was I knew well I knew I was doing two things by going into the den. One was speaking to those investors and getting them on board, and the other, and this is critical, was speaking to the public. So you know I think every invest every entrepreneur who goes on to Dragon's Den is doing it for both the investment but also the PR yes. um, and you know th- th- everybody knows that but I therefore went in there thinking if I if I can get this across to the public then the investors will get it because ultimately they're thinking about is this sellable to the public and the public will get it mm-hmm. so I think you know I, I knew that, that that was one thing that I went in there doing which was like, I need to be able to tell a story here that the general public will understand because a it's going to sell it to them but also it means that the dragons will see that I can sell it to the general public and they're going to get that instantly um, in terms of the dragons that I went in there for I knew that I knew that Deborah Meaden was not only incredibly experienced and very wise but also um demonstrating essentially her wisdom I think by shifting to the sustainability Mm -hmm. and and the sustainable approach I think 
I, it just shows how far ahead of her um, peers, I suppose, she is in that thinking mm-hmm. um, that she's recognised the opportunity of, of green investment um, and, and sustainable business. Mm-hmm. So it was an, she was an obvious choice, of course. Um, but Stephen Bartlett, I didn't know very much about him because he was obviously new this series. Um, but I could tell that he was going to be going to shake things up a little bit and obviously be very focused on growth and and marketing which is something that any business like ours which is trying to change consumer behavior Mm -hmm. has to have um so when they both offered to invest I genuinely stood there and thought I can't decide between these two people um and I thought well I could split it but I also knew I needed a bigger round I knew that 70,000 pounds wasn't enough so yeah. I thought I didn't really have anything to lose by asking if I could see how keen they were I could see that there was quite a lot of healthy comp- competitive yes. um yeah. tension in the room and I thought that was you know the ideal opportunity to try and, and maybe ask for more so I did <laughs> I actually thought at one point that Peter Jones was going to jump back in after he sort of said I'm out because the way the other dragons were eager to get on board I thought oh well he, he obviously the way they edited is not how it works and and the comment that they showed when he said I'm out it didn't actually happen like that oh. he he actually opted out because he said he couldn't add anything to what the other dragons had already put forward um the comment about fast fashion came much earlier in the conversation um and of course that's the way it goes in the edit but peter jones did offer me a job so i um which also didn't make the edit which i was rather devastated about Mm -hmm. um but um he he said charlotte i'm just so sad that you started a business i'm sorry i don't understand i was really flawed and he said because I'd, I'd have loved to have given you a job. Um, and, and you know, that actually was almost a bigger compliment than him offering to invest. So mm-hmm. I was quite happy with that. <laughs> well, I mean, you've got five incredible business people basically saying you're doing fantastically well. So, yeah. I mean, what better endorsement is, is that? Absolutely. I'm very lucky. Okay. And just one final question in that space. How are things since your appearance in Dragon's Den? <laughs> well, it's, only, it's only believe it or not been six six weeks I think um maybe seven now because yeah. uh, obviously it filmed in July last year but it didn't air until the end of January oh, yeah. um so it's been a real whirlwind of six weeks to be honest it's still very very busy um there's so much to do we're trying Good to busy, scale the I hope. yes it is good busy um we've had lots lots more customers we've increased um, by 300% um, in terms of our oh. customer number. Um, and of course that brings challenges. And so it has been enjoyable, but challenging, I would say over the last six weeks, mm-hmm. because there's lots of things that we've had to rapidly adapt um, to meet that growing demand. And I, I assume you've had to grow your team as well. What was your team before you entered the Dragon in terms of numbers and what's the team now? Or where do you hope to grow it to? Um, well, so I'm, I'm still the only full-time member of staff. Mm-hmm. um which is in itself slightly challenging mm-hmm. um and before we went into the den there was uh, myself and I had a part-time head of operations mm-hmm. um she's still with me part-time I now have two members of warehouse staff part-time and I have somebody who helps me with my um owned marketing so my social media ultimately mm-hmm. also part-time um because you know 140,000 pounds doesn't go a very long way yeah, so true what we need to do as a as a small team is to um cement our position over the next six months so that we can raise more money and at that point you know i would love to have a team of 20 at least people on board if possible um 
then yeah, it's a very I different think, business. <laughs> very, very different business. I, you know, I think we are very stretched right now. You know, we've got an awful lot to do with only me and four part-time members of staff. Mm-hmm. Um, and we're doing it, we're getting there, but it's much slower than we'd like it to be. And, and I think- And, and, you know, and don't forget that you're, you're juggling the most important role, being a mother as well. At this <laughs> Absolutely. Time. So, Absolutely. understand that. Okay, fabulous. Let's move on. At TED's talk, we, we like to discuss the future and where a sector is going. Um, I want to talk about the, the Little Loop's future, sort of Little Loop 2.0. What will that look like? We're already starting on that journey. Um, There are two things that we're starting to think about, one of which is slightly more advanced. Um, The first is to introduce um, resale, so secondhand sale alongside rental, because what we have realised, and I've realised this really just even through observing my own behaviour, but is that rental rarely sits alone. Very few people just rent their wardrobe. Um, a lot of parents who like rental also want to have a certain amount of secondhand clothing in their wardrobe, mm-hmm. whether that be for nursery or messy play or just because, you know, they, they want to own some things as well as borrowing others. Um, we've also had a lot of customers say, hey, I've got loads of things that I could give to you. Would you rent those? And that's more difficult for us to factor into our rental model. Mm-hmm. But our technology is such that it's not a huge leap for us to introduce resale. Um, so that's the first thing that we'd like to do, um, ultimately so that we can become a one-stop destination for all of the more sustainable options for clothing children. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we are a technology play. We do have a very bespoke and pretty unique, we believe, um, technology platform, which won't take years of adapting um, to turn into something that's white labelable. Um, so we would like to be able to turn that into something where yeah. we can white label it to large retailers who would like to run their own rental service. Okay, um, just a quick question. In terms of the age group, um, of mm. children, what age group do you provide the clothes for? So we currently operate from 12 months to 10 years. Um, we have only just recently introduced the very eldest and the very youngest of those age groups. So they're still, um, you know, we're still building out our selection there. Mm -hmm. Um, and we would love to expand certainly down to babies and probably into teens as well. Mm -hmm. Um, teens, just that little bit harder because the brands become quite different. They're, you know, they love a bit of Depop, they, but they also love fast fashion. I think they're, they're harder to cater for, but we'll, we'd like to find a way if we can. What about adults? Can you see this working for the adult population? I do think so. Um, I have um, rented myself for over a year now with a business um, who've sadly just had to go on pause because Mm -hmm. of various legislative reasons and and other things. Mm -hmm. Um, And I've really enjoyed it. it. And it's been a subscription and I've, you know, used it in a way which is similar to the way that the Little Loop operates. And we've had a lot of customers say, when are you doing this for adults? Yes. I, I do think there's potential there um, and, and potential to do it on a membership basis at a, at a good price point. So not necessarily, you know, it's currently been operating in the designer space, really, mm-hmm. but we're making it work for children's clothing, which is not expensive. So I think we could make it work at a more affordable price point for adults as well. So it's definitely not off the cards. All right, okay. But and I don't know, maybe it's just me. I, I just, I can't see it working as well as children's clothes, but 
it has a different problem area so you know it's a very different problem space children obviously grow and therefore need new clothes mm-hmm. um but adults do churn through clothes as well and like newness in their wardrobe the challenge with adults is they do often hold on to the older things yeah. for longer um and that's you know that's possibly where you know where the issues might come in um but i think if you see it as a top-up so for example when i rent it i have all my basics jeans t-shirts mm-hmm. um kind of plain shirts and things i have those that i own but i want to change my knitwear every season because i don't want to be wearing the same jumper every year or i want to change my dresses because i you know you do get yeah. bored of wearing the same thing yeah. if you rent the things that it makes sense to rent and that it makes environmental sense to rent in fact then I think there's definite potential. We'll, we'll see, we'll see. And, <laughs> and, and how do you see the whole retail sector changing in, in, say, 10 to 20 years' time or sooner? I think I'm reading a lot. I, I, I don't know what your answer is going to be, but I'm reading a lot about the sort of the meta-universe. If that's included in the answer, great. If not, I'll, I'll talk about that after. What do you, what do you think? Ah, oh, the meta universe is a hard one for me personally because I don't personally agree with it. I think the um, the deterioration of human interaction on a personal level, you know, face to face, is something that 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 bothers me. I, I don't I don't like it, I, you know. And so, although I am, or I like to think of myself as an innovator who's fair, fairly forward thinking, you're, you're digital. I, <laughs> yeah, I, I yeah, and, yeah. I'm I'm a digital person, but I. I don't want to think that that's the way the world's going. So at the moment, I prefer not to. <laughs> um, albeit it probably is, you know, it probably there probably is something about the digital wardrobe. And but I, yeah, I. I so rather... what, do, or do you have sort of people shopping from little loops clothes through the digital through a metaverse of some sort? Yeah, and that's another thing. You know, with children, hopefully that's not going to happen because you know who or oh, who wants to have their children's lives entirely online? I don't know. But um, I would like to think that. Clothing certainly is something that brings us together as people, and rather than you know puts us in yeah. into the cloud. Yeah. Um, and I do think there's a difference between what I think will definitely happen and what I would really like to happen. Um, and I'm hoping that the two have got some crossover. But I certainly think there is potential for there's a growing recognition of the value of our resources, and it's becoming increasingly inescapable. And in, you know, as climate change impacts us more, and as resources get more scarce, uh, scarce. Um, and so I do think that there is a place where retail starts to recognise the community element of what we own and uses that to bring us together. And that's where I think sharing has so much potential and where the digital element of retail can bring those stories out and can bring that value out in a complementary way to the physical exchange of goods. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'd like to see, I'd like to think that that's where, you know, that that's where we can get to. Well, we, we, we will see. I'm, I'm a little bit on your side with this one. But, and, and in parallel, I'm fascinated by what could happen in the mm. this. But as you say, human interaction, well, what's the price on, on that? Absolutely. Um, especially mental price. Um, I, I mm. would like to, to, to end this episode of Ed's Talk with a question that will be asked to all the guests in this new series, in this new retail series. So what is the solution that you think has yet to be developed but sits firmly within the retail world once available and you know, it could be a practical solution like you talked about or even a digital solution but i suspect you're not going to talk about a digital solution <laughs> 
I think this, I mean, certainly it's not massively revolutionary, or at least it feels like it oughtn't be, but for some reason it still is. And I think it's back in the circularity space and it goes to this idea that things can be um, constantly recycled without any degradation of the fabric, of the material, the base material. So we talk at the moment about recycling materials and recycling fabrics and people say, oh, well, I can go down to my nearest H&M and donate my clothes and they're going to get recycled. And that doesn't mean that at all. It means they're going to get shredded and turned into furniture stuffing. Mm-hmm. Um, the innovation that's needed, and I know there are huge numbers of, of, of innovators working on this, is the ability to design products cost-effectively, which can ultimately be constantly recycled round and round with no need to keep producing new virgin resource or with with much reduced need to keep producing virgin resource. Um, That's where we have to get to because our resources will not support the growing population of our planet. Um, So to me, that's probably the very most important innovation that could happen. Um, It doesn't sound very exciting, but I think it is actually deeply exciting. Actually, I love that answer. I, I love. I can actually see that. That's almost like the the answer to the, the many many problems that we have at the moment. I, I love that. <laughs> Probably why it's so hard. <laughs> yeah, but yeah, it's to come up with the solution though, isn't it? Um, Charlotte Morley, delighted to have you on the show. Many thanks for your time and insights. Thank you so much. Thanks for joining me today on this episode of Heads Talk. Don't forget to subscribe to the show via my website, elainepringle.com forward slash Heads Talk, wherever you get your podcasts. Finally, I'd like to thank our sponsors, guests, and you for helping to make the show possible. Please join me next time where I'll be featuring more executives, C-suite leaders, and heads of multinationals. Heads Talk podcast with your host, Elaine Pringle-Schwitter.